Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father David Anderson is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of Chicago. Educated at St. Vladimir Seminary, where he was a student of Father Alexander Schmemann, he was ordained in 1983 and has served as a parish priest for 31 years the last of 15 of which have been at St. Peter's Church in Ukiah, California. From before his ordination until now, he's been both a teacher and a translator of patristic and Byzantine liturgical texts, especially known for his lectures on the early church fathers and the early liturgy. He's also an instructor of philosophy at Mendocino College and also one of our sisters' favorite teachers in the Institute of Catholic Culture's apostolate, the Magdala, Apostolate. Father Anderson, it's, it's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. Welcome, Father. Thank you very much, Father Hezekiah and, and Andy. And the first thing we must do is pray together, and I will pray the most well-known Byzantine tradition prayer to the Most Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings and giver of life, Come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, Father David. Thank you very much. I'm, it's a privilege to be here presenting this to those uh, whom I can see and the many, many more whom I cannot see with all of these wonders of, of media. It's a rather amazing thing that I'm doing this because I... For, uh, among those who know me, I have a long reputation as a Luddite, uh, for those of you who, who know that expression. And when I was initially approached now two years ago to begin doing online presentations, I responded with great fear and terror and said, it's impossible. Any attempt to do it will end in disaster. But now I'm a bit of a veteran of it, but I still rely very much on all of those who make it possible to happen, those who are geographically far from me, but also one who is near to me here, and that is my very, very capable assistant and, and volunteer secretary, uh, Sue Browder in the parish here. You won't see her very much, except perhaps when she might pass back and forth to adjust something. With, with Sue and being held together by tape, I'm, <laughs> I'm able to, to uh, do this presentation for you. What Andy said about me is accurate. It's a little bit dated, however. I'm a little bit now older than when that little bio was made. So I've been a priest 36 years, parish priest for 36 years, and 20 of those 36 have been spent in this little mission parish uh, in Ukiah, California, which probably most of you have not heard of that place. It's two hours north of San Francisco. It used to be identified as being in the center of the Northern California wine-growing country, but now it is the very center of the something-else-growing uh, country. 
So uh, there our little parish has been, and it is outside of the uh, large cities in Northern California of San Francisco and Sacramento. It is the only other Eastern Catholic Church that is to be found uh, of any of the Eastern traditions. And uh, as uh, it's good for us always to remember when we start something like this, which has Catholics from many of the particular churches gathered, remember that it is a, uh, an expression that is so Catholic to contain both the singular and the plural. Specifically, I mean that the Catholic Church singular is a communion of particular churches, plural. And many of those Eastern Catholic churches share one particular tradition, the Byzantine tradition. There are also many other Eastern Catholic traditions, the Coptic, the Ethiopian, the Armenian, uh, the Syrian, the Assyrian, for example, the Chaldean, as, that is, as it is sometimes called. So we will, in, in this series of talks, uh, draw from a number of these traditions. Uh, I myself have what might be called a hybrid background because although uh, I was born of a Byzantine Catholic mother, my maternal grandparents came from Austria-Hungary uh, before uh, the First World War and were uh, Eastern Catholics. However, by the time I was born, my father was of Lutheran background and did enter the Catholic Church later on, but when I was six or seven years old, by the time I was born, my parents had moved from central Pennsylvania up to upstate New York, Jamestown, New York, where I grew up. And there are no Eastern Catholic churches there of any kind. And so that means that, that my childhood in terms of church going, and my family was a very church going family, was in the Latin rite, because that's what there was. And of course, we had our uh, Byzantine traditions and customs at home, but my experience of the church and her liturgy, the corporate experience of the church, all through my boyhood was that of the Latin rite. In the old days, this is the 50s, I'm, I'm uh, perhaps I can say I'm older than I look. I'm, I just hit 65 my past birthday. So uh, my, my childhood experience, my boyhood experience is that of the, the traditional form of, of Roman Catholic worship. And then as I got older, I, I was more and more attracted to, to the tradition in which I am considered to canonically belong by the Catholic Church. And from my college and then seminary days, I have always, from then on, identified myself as a Byzantine Christian, a Christian of the tradition that has come down to us uh, from actually three of those five churches that Father Hezekiah mentioned, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. All of these three feed into what has come to be known as the Byzantine tradition. So it's from that perspective, I, I guess I would say that my claim is to be uh, a sort of incarnation of, of both longs, to use the expression of of uh, St. John Paul, uh, both lungs functioning. So that puts me, I'm thankful for it, in, into uh, a place where I'm, I'm one of, of, of a group 
who are capable of, of providing what I would call uh, respiratory exercises for, for uh, many who have not had those advantages of, of living within more than one of the church's traditions. So that's a very brief summary of my background. The title of, of these talks is Restoring a Liturgical Catechesis. Now that sounds uh, very perhaps complex. Um, let's look at just a couple of those words, the second and the third. Uh, liturgical having to do with the liturgy, perhaps most of us realize that liturgos, liturgia, uh, Greek words, that are not Christian in origin, uh, are not even really religious in origin. A liturgia simply means a work, urgos, is to form something, to do something. Liturgos, liturgia, is something that is done for the public good, for the good of many. Uh, it implies, therefore, the people the people's work, a work for the people. One even might think of an expression that's a uh, more contemporary one. Most cities have a department of public works that works with either greater or lesser efficiency. And there we can find the origin of our, of our expression, uh, liturgy. Now, of course, we often modify that word liturgy with other words. For example, the expression that's used in the tradition in which I live, the Byzantine tradition, to, to speak of the celebration of the Eucharist is the divine liturgy. The divine liturgy, divine of course being of God. So that adds of course a, a an endless dimension, so we're not just talking about a public work, but we're talking when we say divine liturgy of God's work, God's work for his people. However, and this however is important, when we hear the word work, we almost automatically think that that's something that we do, not unnaturally. Uh, my work today is what I will do. There's, you can't fight that. However, when we use such an expression to refer to God's work for us, we have to adjust the way we understand work it simply as doing. Otherwise, what will happen is that we will fall into a very common trap. And the trap is briefly this. To speak of the liturgy as one of many things that the church does. One of many church activities. Or we would perhaps want to elevate it higher and say, well, the liturgy is the most important activity of the church. But that is not primarily what the liturgy of the church, the divine liturgy, whether it refers to celebration of the Eucharist or the entire uh, liturgical life of the church is the work of God. The liturgy is at its heart, 
the church being herself. The church being herself. And I speak of, of the church as her in the feminine, as Holy Scripture does, as the bride of Christ, just as Israel in the first covenant is spoken of as the bride of God. And St. Paul speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. So I will speak of the church in the plural. The liturgy is the church being herself. This, this contrast uh, between being and doing. Well, I want to turn for just a moment to develop this a bit to uh, one of the books that uh, my, my very great, blessed, and revered teacher, uh, Father Alexander Schmemann, I was privileged to study under him at St. Vladimir Seminary. And then after that, uh, it wasn't limited to that. After that, he was a personal mentor for me for many years. I did work for him. Uh, so I was as close to him as someone in my position could be. And he has left an, an indelible, you know, to use the, the expression, expression sometimes that uh, is used from St. Thomas Aquinas regarding the, certain of the sacraments, an indelible character, an indelible mark upon my life is, is the formative influence of Father Alexander Schmemann. One of the books that he had the students in all his classes read, and he said of this book, that if you want to begin to develop a liturgical sense, and the, the title of, of these talks, Restoring a Liturgical Catechesis, of course, catechesis means a teaching received by word of mouth, literally. That's what it that's what uh, catechesis is. So that's what's going on now, a teaching being received by word of mouth. Um, if we want to develop the capacity for a liturgical sense, one of the things that we ought to read, uh, said Father Alexander Schmemann, is a little book called The Sabbath by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. It's still very easily uh, to be found. And in this book, a, a Rabbi Heschel was uh, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, therefore observant of all the commandments, decrees, and statutes that are given in the Old Covenant, but also a man of great perception into the condition of uh, contemporary humanity, especially uh, contemporary humanity that has been so formed by the, the growth of technology. Uh, of course, one of the results of that te technology is what we're doing now. But technology, uh, I, I will read my little passage in a moment, uh, technology has both a, 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 as does everything, uh, another, by the way, this uh, notion of some of the Protestant reformers that everything we do is bad because we are totally depraved. Therefore, we are not capable of anything good in this false way of looking at our condition. The orthodox, and I'm using that word in its most basic sense, the way it is used both in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition. By the way, 
I would recommend very highly as one of the best things that we can do for the sake of, of moving toward a, a greater unity between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians, as well as the Eastern Catholics, of course, if only we would return to the use of those words Catholic and Orthodox the way they were used in the undivided church uh, for the first millennium, which is, in summary, this. Catholic meaning complete. Now, I know the catechism definition often says universal, and that's acceptable, but the more basic definition is complete, kaf olu, according to the whole, not lacking anything. So complete. That word is first used, again, it's not a Christian word or a biblical word in its origin. It's used first by St. Ignatius of Antioch to refer to the church, the church. So Catholic is an adjective that modifies the church. And orthodox, which of course means, it's a kind of double word, orthos, correct. Uh, the dox part of orthodox, from doxa, uh, means glory, the correct glory, the true glory, the true praise. But also at the root of doxa is the verb dokeo, which means to teach. So to teach correctly, to praise correctly, to glorify correctly, in this case, of course, to teach and glorify God correctly. That word, the church made its own as an adjective describing the faith. So the orthodox faith of the Catholic Church. Much trouble could have been avoided, in my opinion, if, though that, if the original uses of those words had been retained and they had not been crossed. So now we speak of Orthodox Church and Catholic faith, too, in addition to Orthodox faith and Catholic Church. And it's caused a great confusion. The true faith and glory given to God of the Catholic Church. That's the best way to use the words. Okay. If we are going to speak of liturgy, catechesis about liturgy and liturgy as work, and work not in the sense of one of many things that we do, now let's hear from uh, Rabbi Heschel. Technical civilization is man's conquest of space. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. In technical civilization, we expend time to gain space. To enhance our power in the world of space is our main objective. Yet to have more does not mean to be more. The power we attain in the world of space terminates abruptly at the borderline of time. But time is the heart of existence. To gain control of the world of space is certainly one of our tasks. The danger begins when in gaining power in the realm of space, we forfeit all aspirations in the realm of time. 
there is a realm of time where the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space, becomes our sole concern. So if I may rephrase that, if we regard the time that we have as simply some fuel to be burned up in our attempt to exercise control over whatever piece of space we have. Whatever piece of space I have in that construct, and if there, any, if there is anything that is a construct, it is the expression that people use increasingly in, this time, in this, these days of, of hyper-individualism, uh, my life, my life. I, I burn up the fuel of time to exercise my control over this construct, this assembly of things that I call my life. If that is all that time is for us, we are incapable, incapable of what the church refers to as God's work, God's liturgy, divine liturgy, the church being herself. And why is that? Why is, is there this danger? Uh, one of the great figures in uh, liturgical scholarship, and perhaps a, a name that a number of you know, uh, would be Monsignor Romano Guardini. Romano Guardini was a scriptural and patristics and liturgical scholar of the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, he, he was very influent, influential in that movement, which became known as the ressourcement, the return to the sources, return to scripture, return to the fathers, return to the liturgical texts as being the sources of tradition. He wrote an especially wonderful book called The Lord, by the way, which uh, it contains his reflections on the New Testament. If you never read The Lord, I would recommend it most highly to you. It's, it's, it has a wonderful format because the chapters are all relatively short. I read the book for the first time when I was in high school, and I read it many times over. My practice used to be to read it during Lent. I have a, I have a great attachment to it because in my family, there's, there's three children. I'm the youngest. My, my late brother and sister uh, are twins. And my brother, when he reached his teenage years, abandoned the practice of the faith. And it was the cause of, of great strife between him and me. And I cannot claim that I was of much help because I, I held it against him rather than uh, showing more of the love that I should have shown him despite his unbelief. But it all came out very well in the end. Later on, uh, my brother returned to the faith and, and uh, died a holy death. Uh, he, he died rather young of cancer. 
but uh, when he returned to the practice of the faith, I gave him my personal copy of the Lord, and then I had to go out and buy uh, one of the new printing because I had one of the original printings of it. And he, he kept that book uh, in his room, either on the, the stand with his icons and prayer books and Bibles or else right by his bed for the rest of his life. In addition to the, being the author of the Lord, uh, Romano Gordini also wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And uh, it's not by accident that Pope Emeritus Benedict, who uh, it, uh, in along with, now I never met, Pope Emeritus Benedict personally, though I did have the privilege of being one of the two Eastern Catholic priests who can celebrate with him at the beatification of John Henry Newman. But uh, he is a, another formative influence for me, and I would say a hero. Uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict wrote a, a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy that was inspired by Romano Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, and also, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict wrote the introduction to the new printing of the book, The Lord. Now, in the spirit of the liturgy, uh, Romano Guardini's, in Romano Guardini's book titled that, he says uh, quite a shocking thing. I don't have it with me right this minute, but I, I can quote it almost verbatim. Uh, he says a rather shocking thing. He says that he uh, foresees that by the end of the 20th century, he had died by then, of course, uh, by the end of the 20th century, he would say that, uh, I don't think he used the word Western, Western man or, or, or technological, he used some other word that I can't remember, I'd have to look at the text, that we, we would become, by the end of the 20th century, predicted Romano Guardini, incapable, incapable, of liturgical acts, no longer capable of them. And he, he went on to say that, that the faithful would continue to go to church and they would continue to have the sacraments of the church, but their relationship with the sacral, sacramental life of the church would have become so individualized. He saw this trend to individualization, so individualized in which whatever relationship there either is or, or is imagined to exist between uh, God and, and each person is no longer expressed corporately. So even a service, a church service that takes place with many people physically present in the same area would actually be not a gathering, not a liturgical gathering, but rather scattered individuals. And of course, one of the descriptions that St. John's Gospel gives us of the passion of Jesus is that he came to gather the scattered people of God. But Romano Guardini warned that if we continue on this way of individualization, we would become incapable of being gathered, of experiencing the gathering. We would see the sacraments of the church as something that each one of us individually need, 
almost the way that we look at what we get at a grocery store or a filling station and would no longer experience them as the ground of faith, as the church being herself, but simply as the fulfillment, the way that we fulfill private religious needs. In other words, this individualization that has deep roots in the Reformation, uh, that salvation is between me and God, and uh, an, an Orthodox writer uh, of, of some decades ago uh, wrote a book, Anthony Ogolnik wrote a book called The Illuminating Icon, in which he describes trying to, to describe to some evangelicals, he, an Orthodox Christian, trying to describe to some evangelicals that the individual Christian alone has no relationship with God alone. Nothing. It doesn't exist because God isn't alone. <laughs> what makes Christianity Christian is our faith in God as the communion of persons. For heaven's sake, literally, for heaven's sake, never think of the Holy Trinity as some sort of secondary icing on the cake of doctrine. The Holy Trinity is the very life of God. And what is manifested in the Holy Trinity is God is not alone. And of the religions that we can describe as being creational monotheism, it is only Christianity in which God is not alone. And therefore, we who are created in God's image and likeness on the level of creatures, those who don't self-exist, but are called from nothingness into being, as we say, we exist as God intends us to exist, only to the extent that we, ex we live relationally with each other and with God. Now, I, I brought tonight a, a very, mm, you could call a, a very lofty, sounding, theologically, a deep theological expression, <clears throat> trying to define the word liturgy. And, and though it is, it is somewhat, somewhat wordy, it's valuable. This comes from a relatively contemporary liturgiologist, David Fagerberg of Notre Dame. He says in his book on liturgical asceticism, this is a this is a six-line-long definition, so here we go. Liturgy is participation in the perichoresis. Liturgy is participation in the perichoresis of the Trinity. Asceticism is the capacity for that participation. Asceticism provides the capacity for that participation. Theology is union with God. So the church's liturgy is an act of theology. Liturgical asceticism is the lifelong process of deification that results in the removal of the cataracts of sin from our eyes, giving us clear sight at last.
clear sight at last. Now, if this sounds, as we used to say, highfalutin to you, it need not. Perichoresis, that, that uh, Greek word, which has a very, very uh, nice etymology, you know, etymology is the break, breaking down of a word into its parts. Korevo uh, in Greek is to dance, to dance. Perichoresis is to dance in and out and with. So it refers to the indwelling of the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that the divine persons live in each other. They are not external to each other. They are internal to each other. And that is spoken of as a dance. There's a Latin equivalent of perichoresis, but it's not as exciting sounding. Uh, each language has its genius, you know. Uh, Latin is very good as a, as a, a terse uh, legal language, uh, but sometimes it, it loses a little bit in, in uh, dynamism and poetry. So Latin generally uh, renders the Greek perichoresis as circum intercessio. And that's all right, but I, I prefer the literal dancing, dancing together in and out, uh, because it refers so beautifully to the eternal begetting uh, by the Father of the Son, not as some sort of event, because it's not in time. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and rests in the Son. So that same perichoresis, uh, we, now we are told in David Fagerberg's definition that we have to have the capacity for participation in this perichoresis. In other words, we have to learn how to live inside God. Now, of ourselves, we're not capable of it. The fall has made that impossible uh, for us to do that of ourselves. But the fall is not such a total depravity that we are incapable of receiving what God has given us, both the first creation in our being called from non-existence into being, and then the new creation in Christ, which makes it possible to live inside God. And because we live inside God, we live inside one another. Now, uh, the notion of living inside one another within our present dimension of being confined in time and space might not be so inviting. I don't know. Hard to conceive. Hard to picture it. But, but really, it is the deepest desire of our heart to not be outside. Not be outside. Who are the damned, in the words of the Lord Jesus? Those who are outside in the outer darkness who are not in the bridal chamber. So to live inside God, Jesus says to the apostles at the Last Supper that in my Father's house there are many mansions. At least any self-respecting English translation of the Greek will render it that way. Now, unfortunately, with, with some of the less accurate translations of the Bible, I'll, I'll allow myself a brief rant here. Uh, we hear that we read, for example, I believe in the New American Bible, of which I am no friend, and I don't make any, uh, uh, I don't try to be diplomatic about that. Uh, we hear, in my father's house, there are many rooms. 
rooms. Uh, and why do we hear that? Well, because that's how in our limited experience we understand things being broken into smaller and smaller units. A house has rooms, we understand that. But here we are talking about the father's house, and if you go inside the father's house, it's bigger and bigger on the inside than it is even on the outside. So in the Father's house, everything is larger and larger. As St. Paul says, we go from glory to glory. So indeed, in the Father's house, there are many mansions. Mansions, that's another way of expressing that perichoresis, having, having, being capacitated for living inside God and living inside God, therefore living inside each other. Then I shall know, says St. Paul, when I no longer see in the mirror dimly, then I shall know even as I am known. Or uh, well, even more explicitly, in the words of St. John at the beginning of the third chapter of the first letter of John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and it has not yet been revered what we shall be, we know that when he is revealed, St. John is speaking here of the last day of the second coming, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, not even the claim to be a child of God can express the destiny that God has in store for those who love him. We are God's children now. But when he is revealed, ultimately revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall live inside him. Well, that is the church being herself. And it is for the liturgy to manifest this, to manifest. My, my teacher, uh, Father Schmemann, fabricated an adjective. He said that the liturgy was epiphanic, epiphanic. Uh, we speak of epiphany. We even uh, call a feast that, uh, although in the East, usually the expression theophany is used, although uh, epiphany means to be revealed, to be manifest. Theophany means for God to be revealed, for God to be made manifest. So the liturgy reveals God as God is reveals us as we are called to this communion, not as scattered individuals, but as those who are gathered, not as those who simply say, well, I know because I have access to information. That is another great trap, it seems to me, of our contemporary times, this confusing of knowledge with having access to information. Uh, we have access to more information now than any, any uh, generation that has lived before us. Banks and banks and banks of information. And we sometimes confuse this with thinking that access to information equals knowledge. But in the language of Holy Scripture and the language of the saints, knowledge is to have experience of, to have relationship with. It's used to describe the marital union in Holy Scripture. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. 
Adam and Eve lose this knowledge when they choose to attempt to be God without God, when they choose to try to be God unto themselves, beguiled by the evil one who says you don't need God to be God. Sometimes, unfortunately, uh, contemporary Christians dismiss the Genesis account of creation as, as being some sort of primitive story of origins. The Genesis account of creation has an almost immeasurable depth to it. You can be God without God, says the snake to our first parents, and they go for it, and they lose. They lose the vision of God. And God asks them, or he says, he, he addresses his words specifically to Adam, where are you? And now, then we have contemporary scholars of scripture to tell us that, well, that perhaps is an anthropomorphism, which is for God to speak as if he were uh, experiencing human limitations. Where are you? Well, that's not what it is at all. God asks Adam where Adam has gone because God doesn't know. Simple as that. Knowledge doesn't mean that, that God's GPS has gone askew, and that he needs geographical information as to the location of Adam in the garden. Where are you means, of course, that Adam has broken communion with the source of his life. And now God, who has no experience, no experiential knowledge of being out of communion, doesn't know where Adam is. So God goes searching for Adam. So much of, great, of the great Byzantine liturgical poetry refers to God's search for his beloved lost Adam. And when does he finally find him? He finds him in the depths of death, in Hades. God goes in the flesh where, as simply a divine being, a divine person, he cannot go because God and death cannot be combined. So God takes humanity to not only come to our time and space in this world, but to descend to death. And there he finds his poor lost Adam, and they are reconciled. On the blessed Sabbath, the great Moses says the Byzantine hymn that in, in our tradition we sing on Holy Saturday, the great Moses mystically foreshadowed this day when he said, God bless the seventh day, this is the blessed Sabbath, this is the day of rest, on which the only begotten Son of God kept the Sabbath in the flesh by dying. And on the third day came to life, revealing the resurrection to all. The liturgy, a liturgical catechesis, is to strive for Christians Catholic Christians who hold the Orthodox faith of the Catholic Church to experientially receive what is revealed by the persons of the Trinity, 
for the life and salvation of the world. That is what it means not only to, to think or, or to speak, but to know with mind and heart and the whole being, to know liturgically the breadth and length and height and depth of the fullness of God, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So any speaking of a return to liturgical catechesis, it is the desire for the experience of the fullness of God. So <clears throat> that was little introductory talk for tonight, and now we can have uh, some some questions. Yes, excellent. Thank you so much, Father Anderson. Uh, very much appreciate uh, your talk tonight. Uh, much to to uh, contemplate on. I appreciate the depth of your presentation, Father Anderson. The uh, first question is coming from Joel Fernandez. He writes in and says, "Would you consider it symptomatic of the individualism plaguing participation in the liturgy? The fact that many complain of quote." being distracted, end quote, by babies and young children, and that we have cry rooms in many churches? Oh, well, <laughs> much could be said about that. Uh, let's, let's look at it from uh, the historical perspective, which is always a good place to start. Uh, separating the Christian assembly uh, into various age groups uh, has throughout liturgical history been basically unknown until, until very recent times. So wherever you would go, east or west, uh, ancient, medieval, or, or up until reasonably contemporary times, you would find at the liturgical assembly uh, the entire gathering of the church present. And not much concern was given for, specifically as uh, to whether or not the presence of children and the noise they sometimes make uh, was to be regarded as an undesirable distraction. It seems to me that this is a product of a notion that has replaced liturgy with uh, understanding it to be some kind of Bible study followed by a communion service. Uh, the liturgy is neither a Bible study nor, nor even a communion service of itself. It's something that includes those elements but rises above them. We'll talk more about that next time. Uh, and therefore, to isolate the children. I, I read something uh, uh, from uh, on a blog of a priest, I can't remember his name, that was objecting to this, a Catholic church trying to use the model of uh, a megachurch, so-called, um, an evangelical megachurch, in which ch children's church was provided for the kids because they could neither understand the Bible study part of the Mass, and at least in the Roman Rite, when they're small, they're not allowed to receive Holy Communion. So what use is having them there? They're nothing but a distraction. Well, uh, of course, that's a very utilitarian way to uh, deconstruct the liturgy. Uh, and therefore, it seems to me that that it should be avoided. Now, the difficulties that some that sometimes arise 
uh, have been noted not only in modern times, but in ancient times. The Coptic liturgy, for example, uh, in the uh, chanted instructions that the deacons sometimes give as the, uh, uh, gives as the liturgical prayers unfold, uh, uh, will say at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, the deacon, the deacon says, mothers, hold your children. In other words, uh, there should be some care paid that, that uh, there be at least as much of a focus as can be with, with people of, of uh, many, all ages. And it's not only children, you know, my, um, I, I personally took care of my mother for 21 years who passed through a series of many illnesses, including dementia at the end. And she was capable of making quite a racket in church too. She'd sometimes, I'd be celebrating liturgy, she'd sometimes call out to me from the church. And people got used to it after a while. It didn't go on constantly, but it was part of the assembly being there in the liturgical transformation. There's another funny story that comes to mind. I don't know if we could exactly imitate this, but uh, this was a gathering where there were some representatives of the Ethiopian church, and, and one, of the, one of the lesser clergy was present, a doorkeeper in the Ethiopian church. And uh, the, used, the office of doorkeeper used to be present in virtually all the traditions, but the Ethiopian, open, Ethiopian church still has it. And somebody asked the Ethiopian doorkeeper, well, what does an Ethiopian doorkeeper do? And he answered, well, it's necessary to keep uh, as much order in the services. And he says, sometimes, you know, the children, they are crazy. And so the doorkeeper must come and pick up the child and say to him, you be quiet. <laughs> now, I don't know if we could actually do that, but that's a response that comes from uh, the heart of the liturgical assembly as including the entire church. So those are some thoughts. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Uh, another question is coming in from Samuel. It's wondering if you could clarify a point you had made. You had, you had stated that God did not know where Adam went. Um, and Samuel writes that he thought God is omnipotent and knows what we think, knows all things. Could you just expound on that yeah, point? I'll a little try bit? to make it clear. And I, I, I was expecting that question to come because it always seems to when I, when I <laughs> speak of it in that way. Uh, omniscient is the word that we are looking for, the attribute of God to that uh, from the verb shio in, in Latin, to know everything. However, that is one way of expressing knowledge to have uh, information concerning but I was focusing on knowledge in the more basic scriptural dimension, which is to have experience of. So I was not even uh, so much using the word because I don't think it's the context of the way it's used in scripture, that uh, God is not saying to Adam when he asks him, where are you? I do not have uh, understanding of your location. See, that's not the question. That Adam has gone into a dimension where God is no longer present to him, and God does not have experiential knowledge of God's own absence. That's the point. It's a deeper, I would say, a deeper point. 
So I, I hope that, that that helps make it even more clear for the question. Yes, uh, and two kind of questions are, are related here, uh, continuing this theme of Genesis that you're bringing up. Uh, Morley is writing, uh, I'm interested in the Genesis story of, and, and I've not heard it the way that you explained it before. Is there a good resource for studying Genesis, especially Adam and Eve? And um, just related, Bill's writing in is, is asking for good resources for lay people to become more literate with various signs and symbols in the divine liturgy. Okay, oh, that's for for the book of Genesis. I I cannot think of any one particular book. I, I you know I'm thinking of of what the Cappadocian fathers uh, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa when they comment on the book of Genesis. But access, I mean, you can you I would I would recommend looking to commentaries of the fathers on the account of creation, and you'll find. Uh, many of the references that I have made, especially very valuable one. We, we won't speak of it probably in these talks, but when God is described as creating man in his image and according to his likeness, how the fathers have consistently uh, distinguished between those two. They're not synonyms. They mean two different things. And the fathers are, are invaluable there. Um, for concerning liturgical symbolisms, uh, of course, each, each liturgical tradition has its unique expressions. Some, of course, all traditions have in common. So uh, I can't recommend any one particular source that would be uh, inclusive of all. But generally, and now the, the, uh, uh, the things that are available online usually you can find uh, good uh, liturgical glossaries of terms and, and practices. And, and I would recommend searching that, searching for those things. Excellent. Uh, I would also point to a talk I'll include in the further study email by Father Hezekiah. He did Bible study Eden to Eden and spends a lot of time on fleshing out um, Genesis, making sure that we're understanding of uh, the first, say, three chapters correctly in, in viewing the rest of salvation history in, in light of that. So I'll include a link to that, um, as well as make reference to St. Ephraim's Hymns of Paradise, which Paradise, will, indeed. Yeah. will include a link to that in the further study. Uh, Father Anderson, would it be possible to conclude with a blessing from you? Of course. The Father is our hope, the Son is our refuge, the Holy Spirit is our protector, all Holy Trinity. Glory be to you. Beneath your compassion, we take refuge, Virgin Mother of God. Despise not our supplications in adversity, but deliver us from perils, whoever glorious and blessed Virgin. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father, and God bless you guys. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.